Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? A comics and pop culture podcast coming to you from the not-so-solitary fortress that is WaitWhatPodcast.com. Say hello to episode 277, with Graham McMillan and I celebrating our 10th anniversary by talking with writer, raconteur, and mastermind behind so many classic stories, Mr. Steve Englehart. Yes, the man himself joins us for an amiable chat to discuss the early days of working in Marvel, the shadow ban on the word supervillain, sex and drugs and rock and roll, departing New Guardians at DC and leaving the FF at Marvel, working full script versus Marvel method plotting, glory days at Atari, the upcoming Shang-Chi movie, the letters page of Captain America 148, and much, much more in what we promised him would be a one-hour conversation, but is actually very much closer to two. Comments on this episode are available at waitwhatpodcast.com. Send us your questions at waitwhatpodcast at gmail.com, and we invite you to look out for us on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, and Patreon. As always, we hope you enjoy, and thank you for listening. So, uh, as I, I think I, I probably mentioned in, in, in very, very sweaty prose uh, via email, uh, Graham and I do this podcast where basically for the last 10 years, uh, he and I talk about comics, uh, comics news, and of course, stuff that we love. And uh, your work has, has always been up there as something that we've gone on to, to rant and rave about. And since it was our 10-year anniversary, um, we're, we're really incredibly grateful that you agreed to uh, to talk with us. Um, you get China or Lennon for a 10-year anniversary. <laughs> that's, that's I think it's, it's a podcast, so it's Regret. I think Regret is the 10-year anniversary for a podcast. <laughs> is it? Yeah, 10-year. Ten, I think 10-year is the, is, the, is the five year and Regret is the 10-year. So, oh, okay. Uh, so Graham, did you, I, I was, I wanted to get that intro out there and then I figured Graham could ask you, uh, first sort of couple of questions or things we're, we're really hoping to be conversationally, um, uh, rather than, uh, cross-examine you with, um, needless minutiae, but, um, okay. but, <laughs> On the other hand, if you've got some excellent needless minutiae lined up, just feel free to, to blow us away with it because we're, we're, we, we want you to be as comfortable as possible with the process. All right. I'm all about needless minutia. So. <laughs> it has to be said, with this podcast, Jeff and I do tend to go off topic a lot. So if we go horrifically off topic, that is very much in keeping with what we normally do. Yeah, okay. I just just want to throw that out there right now. <laughs> I appreciate you gave the warning, Graham. You're like, okay, <laughs> we can't prep you anymore for this. So, so Graham, did you did you want to start off by by asking him a a, a few things, or do you want? Well, to... I, I, there's there's one thing that I'm I'm really uh, curious about because you know I think Jeff would agree. Like you're one of my favorite writers, and I think you're one of Jeff's favorite writers, but you didn't start off as a writer. You, right. you went. You went to school for philosophy. You you came into comics as an artist, and, yeah. and writing seemed to be, you know, something that happened by accident. When did you realize that this is what you loved? When did you realize that this is what you wanted to do? To the point where you know you went from comics to books to games, and explored it that way. Um, probably when I was writing my first thing, I I. What I liked about comics as a kid was the art. I mean, I'm, when I was a kid, it was the 50s, and the stories were nothing special. Uh, but there was Dick Sprang doing the Batman stuff, and, and uh, you know, and, and that certainly 
counts for a lot of my love of the Batman character, what he looked like. So I, you know, uh, just thought of being an artist. Um, and, you know, so I was an artist getting started, blah, blah, blah. And I ended up on staff at Marvel. This, this might be needless minutia, but I, <laughs> I probably have to explain that, that in those days, everybody had to go to New York physically to, to do comics. It was before FedEx and before the internet and stuff. So the cool thing about it was, I, I wasn't a big fan of living in New York, but the cool thing about it was everybody in comics, with a few exceptions, was in New York. Sure. So you got to know everybody in comics. All the people that you'd idolized before you got there were there. All the new people coming in beside you were there. Um, and one of the people who was there was Gary Friedrich, who wrote Sergeant Fury and Nick Fury. Uh, and... One day, a stewardess was murdered in the apartment above his, and and his wife said, this is creeping me out. Let's go back to Missouri, where you're from. Um, and so Gary told Marvel, he was a, um, an assistant editor, and he told Marvel, in addition to writing that other stuff, told Marvel that he was going to go to Missouri for six weeks. And so he then suggested that I be his replacement. He and I had gotten to know each other, you know, around New York. And um, so, you know, they invited me in to, to check it out. And I really, I was living two, two hours outside New York at that point. So I didn't really want to come in five days a week. And I almost said no, but then I thought, well, it's Marvel, you know, and that's what I wanted, you know, a place I wanted to get to eventually. So I, I sort of cavalierly said, I'll come in four days a week. I'll do it Monday through Thursday. And they were like, sure, whatever. It's only six weeks. Um, but after six weeks, Gary decided that he really liked it in Missouri and he didn't want to come back. So he had this six page monster story that he was supposed to write and he sent it back and said, no, nah, I don't want, I don't want to take the time, give it to somebody else. And so they kind of looked around the room and, you know, this is where the, you know, the, the great cosmic scheme comes into place or something. Cause they said, you over in the corner there, <laughs> you, you want to write this thing? And I said, sure. You know, I mean, I wasn't going to turn down any any work. Uh, so I wrote it and I liked writing it and they liked what I wrote. So then they said, you want to write some more stuff? And I'm like, sure. And and but it was probably to answer your question, probably writing that six page monster story where I said, hey, this is fun, you know. Um, and so that's the road that I ended up taking. And it was really soon after that that you did. The Beast in Amazing Adventures, right? Yeah. Because that's such a – it's it's just amazing to me because that's really early in your career, but that's so you. Like you have mm -hmm. such a distinctive voice there. You know very clearly what you want to do. You know, it, it, it's as a fan of yours, like that's one of my favorite things of yours, and it's so early on. Yeah, well, um, I was a big comic book fan, right? I mean, I, I – and in those days – Everything cost a dime or 12 cents or, you know, maybe by the time I got there it was 15. But, I mean, you could even even figuring in the difference in what money will buy then and now, you know, I could buy every comic book. So, I you know, I read the Marvels and the DCs and the Gold Keys and the Charltons and the, you know, all the rest of them, the Vampirellas, the Warren books. I mean, um, so I was I was very... I knew what I liked, you know, I mean, I knew what I thought worked and what didn't work. And, and I saw it 
from people, you know, that a lot of other people maybe weren't following or didn't know about or, or, or whatever. So yeah, when I started to write, I had this sense in my head of what would make me happy as a reader and, you know, hoped that that would make you happy as a, as a reader. Um, and so that's, that's what I did, but I was pretty clear in my own head about what I was doing. Um, and as I say, I mean, you know, could have been exactly the wrong thing and we wouldn't be having this conversation (laughs) now, but that's, you know, I said, well, I think this is a good comic way to do a comic. Let's do this. So that's what I did. It's just so confident. Like that, that's, that's what I love. Actually, that's what I love about all of your work. You know, I, the first stuff of yours I read was was uh, West Coast Avengers and, and mm-hmm. Vision of Scarlet Witch and, and Green Lantern Corps and, and Millennium in mm-hmm. in the eighties and yeah. you know that's that's the stuff that I you know when when someone says your name that's the stuff that I immediately think of and I know that for Jeff it's it's the the Avengers stuff in the seventies mm-hmm. and Captain America as well but it's you know in both cases and in and Beasts and you know then you look to like Strangers and and, and later work in the nineties. Like you are, you have such a distinctive voice, and you're so confident in it that it's 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 a joy to read. Well, that's a thank you, first of all, and that's interesting because I've never heard that com- comment before. I mean, oh. I've had people say, "Oh, you know, I liked it," or "I didn't like it," but I haven't heard the confident idea. But I think it's correct. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, again, <laughs> I just uh, comics was not a mystery to me by the time I got there. Just out of curiosity. Um... In in that regard, one of the things that sort of if, if I if I understand and I ingested a massive amount of, of uh, interviews with you over the last couple of days, so I may be screwing things up. But you didn't really uh, work full script until the Batman stories when you went over to DC. Is that is that right? I mean, all Basically. of the Marvel stuff was essentially Marvel method. Yes, uh, I did some Vampirellas, the you know her own series. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Unfortunately, only four issues, one of which got lost in the mail, so only three got published. Mm-hmm. That was full script. Mm-hmm. Um, but everything at Marvel, yeah, was done Marvel style, which I still prefer. I, you know, it's not really in use anymore. Now everybody wants full scripts, but I really like the Marvel style. Well, what you said, but you also... One of the things that kind of struck me was that I think in one of the articles you mentioned being able to write the Batman full script allowed you to sort of pace everything perfectly because you knew you had sort of a restricted deadline for your for your time at that point. Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, again, by the time I got to Batman, um, that was five years in and I was. You know, by that time, I was a seasoned veteran. Uh, and even though I hadn't written full script, mm-hmm. it's it's not rocket science to write full script. The reason I like Marvel style better is because, uh, you know, I prefer to let the artist have as much leeway as possible. I, I mean, I say, here's the story. Now you tell it visually. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. I'm looking at exactly the same artwork you're going to look at. So I only have to write stuff that will enhance that artwork. The, mm-hmm. the problem with full script is, you know, you don't know what the artwork is, so you kind of have to, you know, hope that the artwork is going to do what you think it's going to do when you're writing the dialogue. So that's why I prefer Marvel style, but I did have to write the Batman stuff. And, and um, the 
you know, DC was pretty was pretty moribund at that point. I mean, the reason I was there was because uh, Jeanette Kahn had had asked me to come over and sort of salvage the company for mm-hmm. her. Um, and so, you know, uh, Neil Adams was overdoing Marvel stuff. Gil Kane was overdoing Marvel stuff. Bob Brown was overdoing Marvel stuff. Arnold Drake was overdoing. I mean, all the people who had been. Gil Kane had gone. Right. All the people who were who were like major DC names were all working at Marvel mm-hmm. these days, and so I wrote those Batman things. I, you know, as I said at the beginning of this, I love the Batman. Um, I was hired to you know redefine the Batman. I enjoyed doing all of that, but again, all I could do was hand the script in, and then after that. Um, cause it had been, um, Walt Simonson and, and Al Milgram in the beginning. And I, and for whatever reason that didn't work out, uh, you know, that was not at all in my wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. I had nothing to do with that. You know, it was a editorial decision, but so if it wasn't going to be, you know, Simonson and Milgram, there wasn't a lot of bench strength at DC as far as I knew. So I, I turned those scripts in and I thought, well, you know, I hope that even if the art's no good, that the stories will be strong enough to, you know, to kind of like make people happy. Right. But then it turned out to be Marshall and Terry. So, you know, everything worked out there. Very, very lovely. Uh, To to flip back on things, I just wanted to say, and maybe this is not the case for you, but I would think that um, my understanding is the Marvel method very much grew out of, you know, Stanley being busy as hell, but also working with, you know, super, super accomplished veteran artists. It would, it would seem to me that the Marvel method would be a harder method to learn right out of the gate as opposed to full script. Um, For the writer? Yeah, I would think, but am I, am I mistaken in that regard? Does it give you a lot more leeway to fix things after the fact or? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I just, I just told you the pitfalls of writing script in advance. Right. Um, I can, I can use all these names now cause nobody else is still alive. But <laughs> when I was doing Luke Cage, mm-hmm. um, I would sit there and I would think up a Luke Cage story and I would hand it off to the artist who was George Tuska. Right. And I liked Tuska's stuff as a reader, mm-hmm. but George was real old school by that point, and he would look at my scripts and he'd go, or my plots, mm-hmm. and he'd go, yeah, that's a lot of work. I don't want to draw that. And so I'd get back a completely drawn book mm-hmm. where Luke Cage was doing stuff that I had no idea why Luke Cage was doing that. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. And I I have it's it's it wasn't fun all the time, but it was very good training as a writer to kind of go, well, there's no way in hell that he would do this. And yet there he is doing it. So I have to come up with some (laughs) some explanation as to why he's doing this. And it taught me, you know, you can sort of make anything work. Uh, you can come up with an explanation as to why the sun comes up in the north if you you know if you try harder. Um, so uh, you know there were pluses and minuses, but again, all I was doing when I did the script was, I mean, I would say here's the story. It's like that you know, and I would just tell the story. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to break it down. 
mm-hmm. particularly. Some artists, Gene Colan, for one, needed his needed to have things broken down page by page, mm. or else he would he would you know spend the first. 80% of the book on the first 20% of the book and then have to cram it all in at the end. <laughs> right. um, uh, so, you know, I mean, I just, I would just say, here's the story. And, and then, and anything that was important, I'd say, be sure that, you know, this is done, you know, on a Saturday night, looking into a computer, that's important. You know I mean? But otherwise, right. if it didn't matter, I didn't have to worry about it. Right. Um, and so then, you know, I mean, then the art would come back and I would look at the art and I'd go, well, I mean, I'm looking right at the art. So it's not hard to write the dialogue that that's supposed to go. Well, I know the story and right, I know what right. the what the art is showing me. So I, I don't think I mean, I found it harder to write script in advance. And, and you mentioned Green Lantern a little while ago. By the time I got to Green Lantern, mm-hmm. I still had only done probably those Batmans as a as a full script. But that's what DC wanted. And I wrote the first, um, you know, half dozen Green Lanterns that I did as if I had artwork. I just sat there and wrote the dialogue for non-existent artwork and then went through at the end and, and wrote down all what each panel should be in order to justify the dialogue. Because um, I could see it in my in my mind. I mean, that was the, the great thing about having started out as an artist I can always, you know, see how things would look on the page. And I don't expect the artist, as I said before, I want to give the artist as much leeway as possible. So I don't expect him, you know, to draw it exactly the way I saw it. But I never ask for stuff that can't be drawn. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, I could I could visualize the story, even if there weren't any visuals. I could then write to those visuals. I mean... Eventually, I, I kind of got it to where I had the, the the interest in sort of writing them in the normal fashion. Right. Panel one, these guys are talking. He says this, she says this. Panel two, that kind of stuff. But I, you know, but it breaks it up for me. I'm I'm much more dialogue oriented, mm-hmm. um, telling telling the story through characterization and 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 reaction rather than you know blurbs and 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 you know stopping at every panel and saying okay here's what's in this panel and now i'll go back and think about the dialogue that's not my preferred method of doing it but i am you know i am a professional i can do that if i have to oh yeah no you (laughs) clearly can i just it's it's i again it's sort of that weird um you flip a lot of expectations, I think, in that regard, because I think the, uh, I think for myself anyway, thinking of you as someone who came sort of came into comics sort of from through the art to the proofreading to the writing. Um, there have been other uh, writers that um, that have art training that like might do thumbnail breakdowns for the pages and it doesn't it doesn't sound like that's really your approach you prefer something that has a little more where where your investment is really in the dialogue and then growing the story through that i guess yeah there there have certainly been you know very rare occasions but there have been occasions where what i visualized 
might not be immediately evident as to how that was all going to fit on a page. So I would do little breakdowns, you know, mm-hmm. for a page here or a page there once every six months, that kind of thing. Generally, I didn't do it because, again, um, one of the artists to have the freedom to, to do it the way he saw it. Right. And and as you said, I mean, all I'm doing then is is taking everything that he's given me and then trying to enhance it, you know, mm-hmm. trying what can I do to to even sharpen that up more, you know. I, I was going to say, do you think that um, one thing that really struck me in, in reading about your career is that um, you also worked quite closely with some of the artists on some of your early series? And I wonder mm-hmm. if that also sort of helped make, um, I guess, the Marvel method feel uh, a little more organic with you, because certainly in the case of like working with Frank Bruner and Doctor Strange or with Sterling a master of Kung Fu, you guys were very, very closely in touch for um, the, the evolution of the book. Right. We were friends. I mean, that when I, you know, there were a bunch of us who all sort of showed up at the same time. Um, I'm not exactly sure why. I mean, in my case, I'd graduated from college. I'd been taken up by the army because it was those days I'd gotten out of the army um, Starlin was in the army or in some military thing, I think. And I think we were the only two who were, mm-hmm. so I don't know why everybody sort of showed up at the same time, what path got him there. But I mean, Starlin was a friend of mine. Brunner was a friend of mine. And so if we were going to do books, um, you know, it could have been done at arm's length, but I didn't really want to. I mean, it was more fun to do it with them. Mm-hmm. Um, there were, you know, by that time I had moved to California. So I, so I was, it was again, still before the internet or FedEx, I was using the U S mails, uh, to send stuff back and forth. But, um, uh, you know, after a while I was no longer physically in the same places as, uh, those guys, Starlin and Brunner came out to California for a while. They both decided they liked the East coast better. So they moved back eventually. But, um, I mean, so we were together in New York, we were together in California uh, at various times, but, um, you know, when we were together, mm-hmm. uh, I, you know, it was just more fun. I mean, Starlin obviously can tell stories. Mm-hmm. Brunner, Brunner is more concepts, you know, I mean, he would, he would come into Dr. Strange and he'd say, I want to, I want to, you know, explore this concept or I want to draw this thing, one or the other. You know, and I would come in with things that I wanted to write about. And what, you know, what we would do is we'd just sit there and sort of hash it out back and forth until we had something that sort of, you know, had a beginning, a middle and an end and and was an actual story. And then it was my job to write it all down and, you know, and make sure that all the I's were dotted and the T's were crossed and so forth. But um, um, and I did I did Captain Marvel with Milgram that way. But that was being done. That was long distance phone call. And I didn't feel that that was as successful because it was a bi-monthly book. And so every it was like 60 days between the times mm. that we would talk about what we were going to do. And I wanted to do it with Al because he was another friend. But it, but I didn't feel, you know, uh, we were both sort of like reinventing the wheel every 60 days in our brains. So right. that, that was my that was my take on it. And when you guys, I think that's, I think you mentioned perhaps on your website that when you two worked again on West Coast Avengers, you tried to, you didn't try to do it quite so collaboratively as you had with Captain Marvel, right? Yeah, yeah, because it just, it hadn't, um, 
I had not been completely happy with the way things went. Um, it was it was just too disjointed in in my brain because again I couldn't because of it I couldn't just sort of sit there and work out the next Captain Marvel mm-hmm. as the ideas came to me. I sort of had to wait until it was time for us to talk about it. Right. It's exactly the same concept with Doctor Strange, except you know we were sitting in a room together after mm-hmm. dinner and we stayed there sometimes till three or four in the morning, just you know looking at each other and throwing ideas back and forth and so forth. And that's different from doing it on the phone. Uh, I would, I would definitely think so. Um, mm. uh, Graham, I feel like I, I've, I've, I've cornered our <laughs> guest. I feel like you should jump in here. If you've got, oh, well, no, I, still here? I, I, is, I'm just, I'm just happily listening to this because to hear you talk about, especially your first work with Marvel, mm. it sounds very much like, uh, like the dream of working in the bullpen and, and you know collaborating with friends and, and you know talking to three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, that's exactly uh, what it was. And that that was the 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 what fans who read the books wanted the creation of the comics to be like. You yeah. know, and then you did that. You did DC. You left comics altogether. You you, you know you went you 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 wrote a novel. And when you came back in the eighties, comics were different. You know the the industry had shifted. Slightly, and, and they weren't. It wasn't extremely different. I didn't think, but I mean, it was definitely not the same. But I didn't think it. I mean, nowadays it's completely different compared well, I, to that. I, this was not much of a change. I was going to ask because you know, in compared to the seventies to now, you know, it's it's a very different beast. Mm. Making making comics is a very different thing. Did you see that? You know, because you had the distance of leaving for a while. You you wrote the novel. You worked for Atari for a while, and then you came back. Yeah. Did you see the beginning of a change towards? I mean, Warner's had bought DC by that point, and and Marvel, I think, was possibly bought by New World as well at that point. Did you see sort of a, a, a and wanting to keep an eye on? You know, with the merchandise on on making sure that things could be returned to their box at the end of every story was was that encroaching? Uh, not until the end. Not until the end of my second uh, go round with Marvel. Um, when I came back, Shooter had become the editor, and Shooter was well known for uh, a making the trains run on time and b flying off the handle every once in a while. Um, <laughs> right? I mean, that was just common knowledge, and and and. Um, so he was a less uh, there was less f- fun mm-hmm. in, in the eighties. Uh, you know, just people palling around, having a good time making comics. Now there was more of an emphasis on um, getting the book out, even if it wasn't as good as it could be. I mean, you were always supposed to be good and on deadline. And generally, everybody was. Everybody missed deadlines now and again or, or whatever. Uh, but there was more of an effort to make sure that there were never any fill-ins. And um, Shooter had rules uh, that he had, you know, worked out in his own head about why things had gone the way they'd gone before him. Mm-hmm. Um, when I got there, I was told that we no longer use the word supervillain um, because <laughs> – because nobody in the real world, you know, used the word supervillain. Wow. And I, you know, and I sat down with him. I, you know, I was, again, I was kind of fearless about this in that by that time I had a reputation and a track record. And, um, you know, I didn't really know Shooter. So 
he might have been the boss, but it's like I, it wasn't like I knew enough about him to be scared of him, I guess, you know, whatever. Sure. I mean, so, so, you know, I, I, you know, I went in one day and I said, look, you know, I mean, in the real world, nobody uses the word supervillain, but in the Marvel universe, people would soon distinguish between guys who knock over liquor stores and Dr. Doom. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there would be two terms because there'd be two ways of looking at this. And he, he saw the logic in that. And so then it was like, oh, okay, well then I guess you can do that, you know? Um, but there were things like that you had to negotiate. Um, but still, and, and I was, I was somewhat immune from, from some of the stuff that was laid on other people because I did have a reputation and, you know, and I was, you know, blah, 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 blah. But it was at the end of it in 1989 after shooter left and DeFalco became the editor that, um, mm, right. They apparently decided up above that now they were interested in merchandising and, mm-hmm. uh, and all that. And so, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, so DeFalco came to me one day and said, you know, um, you know, we want to go back in the Silver Surfer to having one issue stories with a moral where he flies away being sad at the end. And they said, well, that was, you know, that was the stuff that ran out of gas. Mm-hmm. I, you know, yeah. I changed all that and, and made it work. And he's like, yeah, but that's, you know, that's what we want. We want it in a box. And the Fantastic Four, I had, um, uh, you know, done, I'd taken Reed and Sue out. Uh, because I wanted to like get some fresh blood. I wanted to I wanted to get back to the um, the feeling at the beginning of the FF when they were just sort of making it up as they went along because they didn't know any better. And I thought putting Ben in charge and taking the all wise read out of it would you know get me there. And I so that's what I was doing. And you know Defalco said nope, we got to have Reed and Sue back in the book because that's what we're selling you know to merchandisers those four guys. And so you have to so and that you know. Uh, basically I said, I really don't want to do that. And they said, well then, you know, maybe, maybe you shouldn't be working here anymore. And I said, no, I don't think I, you know, and so that's, <laughs> that's when I left, uh, in, in 89, I consider that the end of the Marvel age. I, I would say that the Marvel age, it went through various incarnations, but I would say from stand to shooter, it was still Marvel as I would, uh, you know, it was within the ballpark. It was after shooter that, that, um, you know, they decided they were going to put out lots and lots and lots of number ones. And then they went bankrupt and then they, you know, I mean, right. It was not a winning strategy, but it, and it was, you know, and I, and I did feel having been a comic book fan before I even got to Marvel and then, you know, walking into Marvel, you know, right when everything was just, wide open and fun and all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> that was the Marvel that I was, um, uh, attuned to. And I really did feel as a, as a, from a personal level that they'd sort of betrayed the whole Marvel, um, ethos. At oh, that yeah. point. Well, uh, but that, you know, but I left, I wasn't, I didn't have to deal with it anymore. Um, just, just to actually cut in, cause I don't necessarily know how, how much, uh, talk about your run on the Fantastic Four comes up, but uh, Graham and I, one of the things that we uh, ended up doing for the podcast is we read through the first 416 issues of Fantastic Four, and um, we, the your run was incredibly, um, it, 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 it 
sparked a lot of conversation because it was fascinating watching you inherit a very different, um, you know, very fragmented version of the FF and you coming up with a new way to change up the team and, and sort of move things forward. And then of course your, um, you, you, you finish that with such a wonderful, wonderful is, I guess the wrong word to say it, but in terms of sort of managing to, to sort of, um, make a silk purse out of a sow's ear, I thought the stories that you ended with where you, where you really amped up the meta text and the Fantastic Four basically frozen in suspended animation and the rest of your run is mm. the dreams that they are having um, struck me as an imp like a very impressively uh, confrontational way to talk <laughs> about what about your discontent and about sort of where you felt things had gone wrong. Yeah, that's a, that's exactly right. Um, I had been building up, setting up, you know, every one of those dream stories was going to be like a three part fantastic mm -hmm. four story. And then when I said, well, you know, I don't think I can do this anymore. They said, well, you can have six months to kind of wrap stuff up on both the surfer and, and the FF and, and, you know, whatever. Uh, so, you know, I took each one of those plots and crammed it into one issue as a dream that the real <laughs> Fantastic Four was yeah. having. Um, and yeah, I was definitely, and you know, I took my name off of it. It no longer said Steve Englehart. I mean, it was just like, um, I, you know, I, I really felt like they were betraying a dream and, and I was, one of the people who was supposed to like uphold that dream, you know, because yeah. I'd been given a chance to, to live that dream. Um, when, you know, all, all common sense would indicate that I would never, that would never happen. You know I mean? So, um, I, uh, you know, I tried to, to just wrap things up as, you know, in the best way that I could under the restrictions that I had. And then, you know, then I was out of there. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I, I wanted to ask, cause one of the things that I noticed in, in the process of, of prepping for this is um, Ralph Macchio was your editor on fantastic four, right? Right. And he also was the person that edited, uh, interviewed you for the comics journal back in issue like 63 or something like that. Okay. Well, I, I don't know if you remember that or not, but I was just... I don't. Oh, yeah, not specifically. <laughs> okay. Because I was just very curious. My my uh, innate tendency, thanks to decades of superhero comics, to, to read in um, melodrama where there isn't... Everything connects. Everything connects. Exactly. I yeah. was just curious if your relationship with him had suffered at that point. And also, for me, the sort of sadness of seeing him in a comic journal interview uh interview you very much it seemed as a as a devoted fan and then you know a decade later you're basically leaving marvel comics and more or less declaring it dead um while being edited by the guy who had you know given a fan interview for you with you for a magazine so yeah, well, I, I mean, Ralph and I definitely did fall apart at the end. I had, I until you just mentioned it, I had no memory at all that we had a history be before that. Mm. Um, um, 
I mean, I know when I came back to Marvel in the 80s, my major um, editor was Mark Grunewald. And Grunewald, I knew, Grunewald said right away, he was, he was a fan, you know, and that's why he wanted to be the editor on the books that I wrote and so on and so forth. I mean, but then he died, right? So right. then other people came in and, and you know, Ralph uh, got, got that book. Um, but as I say, you know, it was, it was, I think, you know, my objection was really to the guys who were upstairs trying to figure out how they could milk as much money out of Marvel comics as possible. DeFalco was just their messenger and, and Macchio was just his messenger in that regard, you know? Mm-hmm. Did you have the same experience at DC? Because, you know, I, I, for me and Jeff has heard this multiple times, uh, New Guardians for me was a book I was really excited about as a reader, and you're gone after an issue. You plot yeah. the second issue, and then then you're 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 just gone. And you know, to this day, I still wish I could have seen what you could have done in that book. And I think I remember reading from you once that one of the reasons you left was that you were basically promised that you had certain limits that you could you could work within, and then that was not the case when you started writing the book. All right, that's exactly it. Um, I, um, you know, they they asked me to do Millennium, the, the you know the summer crossover for that year, and mm-hmm. I worked out this thing where ten people got superpowers and um, you know were then going to have to figure out what to do with it. And when they said we're going to turn that into an ongoing book, I said, you know, well, I'd really like since this is, you know, I'd sort of tried to set the thing in the real world. I mean, that's a slippery concept, but it was more, you know, real life. I mean, I had a racist South African and I had a a black girl who lived in London and I had, you know, uh, there were all these people from all over the world. And so I wanted to do something that was more topical that, uh, you know, basically a non-code kind of book. So I did ask, I said, I want to do, um, sex, drugs, rock and roll, and politics, and they said yes, you can do that. And then when I did it, they said, "Oh well, actually, no, <laughs> not like that. <laughs> you can't do that." And so, um, you know, I wouldn't deny that. Uh, you know, I mean, if 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 somebody promises me something and then they take it away, I'm probably not going to take that all that well. You know, so. Sure. Uh, I, I, uh, you know, I said, fine, I'm not, I, I'm out of here. Um, it's funny because I did plot the second issue. Um, and I only know this because of the story I'm about to tell, but the, the villain was, was named Snowflame, I think, if I have that right. He was a Coke dealer in South America. Um, and I got a, I got an email like about, I don't know, three, four months ago from people going, my friend and I just think your character Snowflame is like the greatest character ever, and we really, really love it. And I'm like, who the hell is Snowflame? I, I didn't remember it at all, right? Um, I, had to, I had to look it up on the internet, you know, on the DC thing, whatever. Um, which I so I still find that peculiar that that would be you know the thing that they really, really, really like, um, but. Uh, you know, it was just I I sort of got that far, and then I just never dialogued it, and and you know, Carrie Bates took it over, and it ran twelve issues and died. I mean, I um, 
but I, I really, you know, I, I thought I was going to be doing a real, I mean, a real code, non-code approved. I mean, I, two of my characters had AIDS. I mean, you know, it was like, I was, I was immersing myself in the reality of the eighties. But, yeah, that that, you know, that first issue is very, very firmly like you know you're you're clearly swinging for the fences in that first issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, to play to play devil's advocate, um, what, is that technically in a way realistic to say I've got the DC summer crossover, which is the major event from the summer, and what we're going to you know, the offshoot is going to be, you know, at the very limits or beyond the limits of what's a code approved book. And we're going to do sex, drugs and rock and roll. I mean, it, it, people, people clearly said yes, but was it just sort of the, was, were they fully behind it or was it the yes of let's hope that he changes his mind by the time that he gets to issue eight of millennium and it's going to go somewhere else. Well, I mean, Millennium was was you know right down the middle. Millennium didn't do sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It was the it was the spinoff, right? Which but, but, by uh, my by my lights, mm-hmm. I mean, we did the thing that we were supposed to do for the summer crossover, and then you know if a book comes out of that, um, then you know then the, then that book is its own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I I can see your argument. It could go the other way. Um, my firm impression was that that they meant it mm-hmm. when they said I, I call him day it's dick giordano was the editor-in-chief and dick was an old friend and so i totally believe that when dick said you can do this mm-hmm. he meant it um but the editor you can look him up but i don't have to you know mention his name on the radio but i mean the editor didn't like some of the stuff i was doing mm-hmm. and then you get into the editor-in-chief, who's he going to back, his editor or the writer who's working for the editor. And as I say, Dick was an old friend, but at DC, they're always very corporate in their thinking. And and um, so I, you know, when the editor said, I don't want to do this kind of stuff, um, obviously at that point, Dick decided to back him rather than me, huh. uh, which was you know, too bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, you know, I mean, I'd known Dick for a long time and I'd known Dick when he was a, you know, the edit- I first met him when he was the editor at Charlton. Um, and he and I both lived in Connecticut so long as I was in the New York area. Um, and, you know, so we would socialize sometimes. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, um, but that, you know, but then he became, you know, Neil Adams' partner in, in continuity, and then he got hired to run D.C., and then he ran D.C. for a number of years before any of this came down. And, and I just think, you know, he became more corporate mm-hmm. working in that environment, answering to the people he had to answer to, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. I, and to, Jeff, to be devil's advocate, to, to your devil's advocate, like, you know, <laughs> well, no, I'm just thinking that there are certain things in – you know, Green Lantern Corps with Hal's relationship with Arisa, you know, mm. with some Star Sapphire stuff that is, I mean, not necessarily pushing the boundaries, but maybe more than you'd expect in a Green Lantern book. Or in West Coast Avengers, there's there's the stuff with Phantom Rider as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. You know, like, so there's there's some level of, you know, it didn't come completely out of the blue. And also, at the same time, you're doing Coyote. 
You know, yeah. like there's yeah. all this materials there. So it feels well, Coyote, Cody Coyote was obviously outside the code, and that was yeah, where I really. Yeah. I mean, um, on the on the splash page of the first issue, I've got Coyote leaping out of the darkness and guys going, "What the fuck." <laughs> which is like not anything that you ever said under the code, right? But I was like, okay, now I'm not under the code. Now I get to talk more like people actually talk. Um, and and so I understood, you know, I mean, I'm, again, I, I understood where, you know, that I would have been doing New Guardians for DC Comics. Sure. Um, but yes, you could push, you could push boundaries within the code and... Um, you know, uh, nobody would have said fuck in in, right. in <laughs> New Guardians, right? Yeah, but I yeah. mean, uh, you know, I could I could I could make the distinction between the types of material that I was that I was able to do. Uh, but yeah, I you know, um, the whole Phantom Rider Mockingbird thing, where basically he raped her and and yeah, yeah. and she killed him. You know, I mean. That was all within the characters of the character, you know, and it just it sounded right to me. And of course, I never said rape. I never, you know, it was like I, you know, it was it was pretty clear. But I mean, I never, I couldn't use the word, and I didn't get into detail. And you know, I mean, so there are all these things. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sure I by that time people kind of understood that I wanted to take stories as far as I could take them. But I did understand, you know, where the boundaries were, which is why I went there in the first place and said, here's where I'd like the boundaries to be on this book um, and thought that I'd gotten an agreement to do that. I've got to ask about Coyote because, like, that's such, you know, I, I talked before about you having such confident voice and such a distinctive voice. Coyote is still within that voice, but it is, as you said, like. It's it's further. You're you're not in the code. You you can you can do things you couldn't do elsewhere. You know how exciting was that, and also how much of that was influenced by by the novel, by by having had the experience working outside of comics and and working, you know, without those those bumpers. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, and that's 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 good thinking. <laughs> uh, when I got to write the novel, um, I was out from under the code in the first time for my writing career. Actually, I suppose Vampirella wasn't under the code either, but. But by, you know, I could do, I could have people say fuck and I could, I don't know if I can say it on this podcast, but I, you know, um, oh, go ahead. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, so yeah, I was able to write, um, you know, the real world, grown up people, uh, all that good stuff uh, in the novel. Um, and then Coyote allowed me to do that sort of thing. And, and um, you know, Comic books, I explain this in the other direction to a lot of people, but you guys will get this. I mean, back in the day, comics existed in a bubble that that uh, everybody who liked comics liked comics and read comics, and everybody else just knew that comics were crap. Right. And you you couldn't convince them. You couldn't say, look at this artwork or read this story. They'd go, no, no, I, I got no time. I know what it is, um, which, of course, is now completely changed but nobody but nobody could have predicted um even stan lee couldn't have predicted where this was going to go mm-hmm. um so um you know throughout the 70s and 80s i think if i were at a party and somebody said what do you write i'd say well i'm i mean what do you do i'd say i'm a writer and they'd say well what what do you write and i'd say short stories 
Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, it's it's funny looking back on it now, but I mean, I um, there was no, you know, if you're at a party with people who have actual jobs and you say you're a comic book writer, it's not going to, you know, people weren't going to go, oh, that's cool. Right. They were going to go, oh, uh -huh, yeah. So I tended, you know, uh, the ability to get outside of comics mm -hmm. um, was was good for me. I mean, it, it allowed me to do stuff that's that was not just trapped within the comic book. Um, and trapped is the wrong word, really. But I mean, you know, I could I could do things that I had the ability to do that I didn't have, you know, but I couldn't do them. Uh, you know, under comic code approved stuff. And, and, and so, you know, I always thought of myself more as a writer rather than a comic book writer. Although obviously I loved comics and comics was what I wanted to write. Um, so. Well, you, you know, know, just to play yeah. devil's 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 advocate here. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I may have thrown in too many devils in there. But uh, one of the things that, that, of course, stands out very strongly is, is that you, even when you were writing comics uh, within the code and in your first stint at Marvel, I, I know that we're all aware that that didn't prohibit you from... Uh, creating characters, uh, sexual characters, or taking right. a character like the Beast and basically having him go through a pretty big personality change by just smoking a lot of pot and learning to relax. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Well, he had been, you know, he had been the guy who used all the big words. He was the, he was the brain guy who used all the big words. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they were sort of, when they handed him to me, I got him with starting with his second issue after Jerry Conway wrote the first one. Um, you know, I just, it was, it was 1972. What can I tell you? And I, you know, and I looked around and I said, well, you know, a lot of people are, are, are loosening up here now. Right. Um, and that includes a lot of our readership. They're more likely to find, you know, this version of the beast resonates with them rather than the, the kind of typical, you know, big word guy. And it, um, it very much so did. It, yeah, he went on to become like such a fan favorite character for such a long time as a result of that change up, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just, you know, for a time there, that was my only book, right? I mean, I, mm -hmm. I had worked my way up. Again, when I after I wrote that monster story and they wanted me to write more, what I wrote was uh, westerns and romance stories because Marvel still published them, and those were the tryout books, really. I mean, you know, I mean, they were, you, they wanted to sell them as Western and romance, but, I mean, writers could could learn their craft working there before they got their chance to screw up Iron Man or whatever, <laughs> you know? Um, so when I got the Beast, when they finally said, okay, here, you can have a superhero, um, you know, I mean, I wanted to make it, I wanted to do what I thought would make for a really good comic and, and, and work for readers as I understood them and all that good stuff that we talked about earlier. Um, and again, I guess it's that confidence you were talking about, because again, you know, if they'd said, oh, this is terrible, this is not the character that, that we are used to, you know, you're fired that I suppose that could have happened. But, um, you know, as it, as, as it happened, people liked 
the book, although not enough to keep it from going under. Um, and, um, yeah. Right. When you brought him into the Avengers is sort of when he kind of, I guess where that's where it really sort of caught his, his character really caught on in that sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, he was my first character and then the book died. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was immediately, um, by the time that book died, I had been given Captain America and the Avengers and, you know, Doc Strange or Doc Savage, and then Doc Strange probably even by then. I mean, Hulk. I mean, I was writing a lot of books. Right. Oh, right. Way, you actually oh, brought God. the Beast into the Hulk, I think, to tie up part of the storyline or something, didn't you? Before right. it popped up in Avengers. Yeah, yeah. I didn't. Right. So I didn't get to finish the story, mm-hmm. and so I, you know, but I, but in the Hulk, I could finish the story, and then that was the end of that. But um, <clears throat> I had in the Beast. I needed supporting characters and, you know, there weren't all of the X-Men world was available to me, but there weren't a whole lot of supporting characters there. Mm -hmm. So that's when I went and got Patsy Walker and Patsy Walker, you know, she helped the beast out and in exchange for him promising to do something for her. And then I never got to, you know, I never got to show you what it was that he promised to do. Mm -hmm. So when I was reconstituting the Avengers, I thought, well, I could bring him in, and 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 he's my first born. He's not. He's still not being published. They still hadn't, you know, gotten to the new X Men yet. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. he was still just floating around. And once he was in there, I thought, well, I could bring Patsy in, and we could find out what it was that he promised her. And then, you know, I mean, so that's how it just all sort of grew organically there. Um, but I find it interesting. I mean, to me, I would say he's still primarily an X-Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I get a lot of people who say, Oh, I think of him mostly as an Avenger, you know? So it was a, it was a, it was good bringing him in there. I meant us. Did you have, were you a big X-Man fan? Because in your Captain America, you bring in the X-Men as well. Yeah. Like in this, yeah. in this down periods where they're not being published, you're well, using them the, a bunch. That's the thing. If you're writing the fantastic four, you're the guy in charge of the Fantastic Four and Doctor Doom and every other Fantastic Four created <clears throat> character. Mm-hmm. Sure. Same with the Avengers, same with any of these books. Um, so the the one group that was not sort of, you know, given to somebody was the X-Men. You know, Roy was the last writer on it. He dropped it off. I mean, um, so the X-Men were there to be used. And again, I was looking for ways to flesh things out. I was writing an X-Man, so it sort of made sense to, to bring the X-Men into the beast. But then, you know, it, it was clear to me that those guys, nobody else was using them really. Mm-hmm. I mean, here and there maybe, but so yeah, I brought them into Captain America. You know, I, I just, um, um, made use of them. I, in retrospect, I was the X-Men writer, <laughs> at that time, right? Because nobody else was doing it. Um, not that I understood that at the time, but um, uh, you know, I mean, take over the Fantastic Four or Green Lantern, for example. I mean, all, there's all this stuff that you can play with, but but the Beast by himself, it was a pretty limited palette until I started trying to add things onto it. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. 
Oof. Uh, Graham, again, <laughs> I feel my, my, I, I, I hear, hereby renounce my advocacy of various devilish types. I, and, and well, comedy. I, I have an, I have an entirely random question, but I'm really curious. How did you end up getting involved in video games? Because you had a, you had a career with Atari, like you yeah. left comics and you had this second career. That, how did that happen? Well, I traced that back to Dick Giordano again when when we were both just people working in comics, him at a higher level than me um, in Connecticut. I was over at his house one day and he was inking with the TV on, and he said, "You know, I really like being an editor, but I'm but I'm mostly glad that I'm an inker because inkers can can spend the, their entire career, and you can just sit in front of the television and lay down ink lines." You know, mm. um, he said, and he said. You know, unlike writers, because every writer that I've ever known burns out, at which point I I can't even, I don't think I even was a writer at that point. But either I was or I remembered that later because I said to myself, I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm not going to burn out. And so um, I left comics the first time because I had editorial disagreements and, you know, all that political stuff. Um, but when I was out, I thought, well, that's one way not to burn out doing comics is to go do other things. I'll write novels. And, and, and um, when I got done with the first novel, it was for Dell. Um, Dell bought the concept for a second novel for me. Mm-hmm. And the concept involved the Silicon Valley, which was a hot new concept in 1980. I live, you know, 40 miles north of the Silicon Valley. Um, there, all this stuff was going on. Atari was well-known, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I was, you know, so I wanted to write a book about the Silicon Valley, a thriller. And there was a guy named Ted Richards who had done an underground comic called Dope and Dan oh, about, yeah. a, about a soldier mm-hmm. who, was, who smoked a lot of dope because uh, it was an underground comic. But he lived in San Francisco as well. Um, I mean, and, and, you know, moving out to San Francisco, uh, I stopped hanging around with a lot of the guys who did Marvel and DC, but I, you know, entered into the realm of the underground comics more. Um, but Ted was now working for Atari, which I thought was odd. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, but I called up Ted and I said, you know, I've got questions about how this business works. And he said, screw that, come work for us. <laughs> And I said, well, you no, know, I'm writing this novel. And he said, yeah, but we'll give you a computer. <laughs> now, we're, talk- we're talking about the Atari, you know, 8600 here with 60, wow. 64K of memory, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. I mean, and everything's on, fl- on big floppy disks and modems at 300 baud that you put your receiver on and all that stuff. I mean, but that was the brave new world then. And that seduced me. You know, I gave, I gave Dell their money back. Mm-hmm. That they'd advanced me, and I and I went to work um, at Atari, you know, designing games. And then when Atari um, got sold in '84, um, I went back to comics at that point. But I continued to do, um, um, you know, one shot work for Electronic Arts and Broderbund and and other Sega, other places along the way. Um, it just was a skill, you know. It was like I was talking about how you can you learn how to write scripts in advance. You learn how to write Marvel style. Now I knew how to do video games, you know? So I, that was just something else I could do. Is there crossover between video game writing and, and comic writing for you? 
Like, did did one feed into the other, or did you learn something from video games that when you came back to comics, you're like, oh, I can do this differently? No, I think they're pretty different. Um, I I I liken it to like learning to play baseball, and you know, you're playing in the San Francisco Giants Park, and then you get traded to Cleveland, and you have to learn where the bout, you know, where the foul lines are and where the fence is, and it's the same game, but there are different different parameters. Um, and so with, with um, games, the stories were much simpler because in those days um, we were dealing in, in, you know, characters were like eight pixels by eight pixels. They fit into a, into a grid. There was no full animation. There was no – actually that came along during those years. Um, if you remember Dragon Quest, the one that was full yeah, animation. Yeah, yeah. Right. Dragon Quest came along. And and um, so that was we could see things were changing. But in the beginning, you were still operating on, you know, you would you would buy a, a small portable TV for your monitor and hook it up to that and and that kind of thing. So um, everything was a lot simpler um, and it had to be, you know, it had to lead to a story that could be told within the parameters of 64K of memory and, and stuff like that. So uh, that didn't really have much in common with being able to write comic book stories about a whole bunch of different characters and mm-hmm. press the limits of the code and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I really liked working at Atari. It was fun working at Atari. Um, fun learning the new skill, fun, you know, working on games, you know. Well, and if I understand your your uh, some of your information on your website, it looked like at least briefly um, when you got involved with the tribe, there was mm. a, an idea toward sort of doing something like comic book continuity throughout a series of game titles, right? Yeah, but that was Atari in like the year two thousand four, oh, something okay. like that. That makes um, sense. Right. That was that was um, Atari had been sold several times by that time and 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 I was as surprised as anybody to discover that they'd opened up a a an R&D basically an R&D lab in San Francisco and I got a call to come over and work for them and and so it was kind of, it was very cool you know to to work for Atari um 20 years after the first time even though it was no nothing like the original Atari and I remember you know when we'd order pizza for lunch and the delivery guy would show up and he'd see Atari on the door, he'd go, Oh wow, it's Atari. You know, it, it had this wonderful, <laughs> you know, it had this wonderful cachet to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, by that time we had a lot, you know, things that progressed 20 years of progression. So yeah, I wanted to come up with this idea where I'd have like this village of people, all these different characters who all sort of knew each other and, and um, you know, three of them would be the stars of one Atari game and three others would be the stars of another Atari game. But you might be able to mention something in one game that referred to the other game. It was Marvel continuity basically. And, you know, on one level. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, I had ideas for how you could get points for what you did with these guys. And so wow. you could have guest stars. People could wander in just long enough to let you earn some points because they were there. I mean, all that stuff. But then, you know, um, that business was very prone to being sold. I mean, you know, the, the video game business, uh, you, you know, Warner's 
sold it to uh, Jack Tremiel and 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 I forget the name of his company. It was a, it was a well known company in those days in '84. And by this time, um, well, actually, I had worked um, in the year 2000. I worked for a company called Games.com, which is the greatest URL ever. Yes. Uh, <laughs> right. Um, and we were turning, it was owned by Hasbro and we were turning all of Hasbro's games. And as, and as we used to say, Hasbro makes every game you've ever heard of, except for Uno, <laughs> um, you know, Clue and Monopoly and, 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 you know, on and on and on Hasbro. And we were turning them all into games you could play online. Wow. And then, um, the Atari end of things, and that included the Atari games. I mean, that Hasbro owned Atari at that point. Wow. Um, we were going to, you know, do the the classic Atari games online, but then the company got sold to a French guy um, who was a big wheel in in Europe. Had you know had a major company over there. I don't remember his name or his company's name, but you know he was he was supposed to be big cheese. And and um, when he flew over to America and came in and, and had his first meeting with us, the first thing he said was. I do not believe in the internet. <laughs> <laughs> that worked out well for him. Yes. So he shut down. He shut down games.com, which was the greatest URL ever. Wow. He just wanted the the Atari, you know, licenses, so he could do whatever he wanted to do with uh, wow. with them. So um, I mean, that business was was. It's the same. It's still the same in Silicon Valley. I mean, you can make big bucks fast and then sell to somebody and then they'll do something and then they'll sell it to somebody else. And I mean, it's just uh, it's it's a cauldron, really. Um, I do find it fascinating that, you know, from where we're sitting in the 21st century there, you know, comic books and Silicon Valley have cast such a huge shadow over popular culture as it's you know as it exists and and i guess in a way in how it's handled and i think it's really interesting that you had careers um at really formative times in both industries so yeah um, well yeah i mean a lot of that is just luck and and being born at the right time and and so on and so forth um um do you, you know. well, I, I guess what I, I suppose is how do, how connected do you feel to today's culture? Does it feel like some sort of, you know, aberrational offspring, like rampaging through the woods, tearing up trees and houses? Or does it feel like... <laughs> I never like, thought it would be like this. <laughs> yes, exactly. Or, or do you feel, uh, you know, a warm glow of, I don't know, you know, proprietary lineage or is it just sort of a no that that's something i was wanting to ask about like you were ahead of your time in so many ways because you you were you were crossing different media you were finding ways with different you know to to expand things and write about subjects that nowadays are commonplace like how connected are you to to what pop culture has become and how informed by comics and how informed by video games it has become yeah i you know for a long time, I, there's been a joke between me and my wife that I'm only 17 years old, uh, and, and but it's but it's it's a joke that that actually means something. In that, um, apparently, my my uh, 
consciousness stopped developing at the age of 17 or something. I still, I still love, I'm totally attuned to pop culture. You know, I, I listen to rock and roll. I watch movies. I play, you know, it's like, um, I, I, I love, you know, comics is sort of fast action melodrama. And so is pop culture. You know, I mean, there's the similarities there in my brain, uh, at least, um, you know, I mean, I don't like the comic book business now. It's mm-hmm. way too corporate. Um, I, you know, I generally like the Marvel movies. Um, but, I mean, you know, I've, I've, I've said my Mantis and their Mantis are, are, you know, the only overlap is that they're both female. There's no yeah. other overlap to be had. Um, you know, there's things where I, you know, I have a personal slant on some of the stuff that they're doing and either like it or don't like it. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, I just have a sort of general, um, I just like pop culture. You know, I subscribe to entertainment weekly. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you mentioned the, the Marvel movies. They're doing a Shang-Chi movie. That's they are. Do you ever get a moment where you you have, you sit back and you think, this is insane. Like this character. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's you know, that's well, I mean, Star Lord was the first one. I never. I yeah, mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's insane. If I had made a list of the people that I created that I thought would end up being in movies someday, <laughs> first of all, I would never have thought that until they started doing it. But, but when, you know, but Star Lord would have been at the bottom of the list probably, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and that just amazed me. But I mean, just in general, I'm, I am, you know, when I did comics and they were not held in high esteem and I had to pretend that I didn't do comics when I was in real society and all that good stuff, um, I could never, nobody could have imagined what stuff has become. Right. And so, you know, yeah, they're making a Shang-Chi movie and, and, um, you know, Starlin and I never, you, I mean, that was not something that you thought of. It wasn't on the radar at all. Right. Uh, the fact that it's now happening, that they're, you know, um, one assumes that if the first one's any good, there'll they'll be three of three Shang-Chi movies, because that's how they usually do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to get the third Guardians eventually. Um, you know, that kind of stuff, it, it, it just, it does... You know, I, I tell people now, yeah, yeah, I had this all figured out. This was my retirement plan <laughs> back in the day. But uh, no, um, so it's all, you know, it's all very pleasant. I mean, to sort of and and again, you know, I mean, it's like we're talking about stuff that I did 45 years ago. Right. Yeah, right. I mean, and and how many people, you know, have stuff that they did 45 years ago that that it's still in print and people still discover it for the first time and have opinions about it. And then they make movies out of it and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty bizarre situation, but I'm glad to be in it. Yeah. So you do, uh, to be horribly crass, but you, do you do see, do you see some money from your characters creations through, uh, Marvel studios or is it mainly royalties? Oh, good. I'm so glad. Well, I mean, it's, it's, a it's, yeah, there's, there's a revenue stream, um, um, for characters you created, not for characters that you shaped. For example, I don't get anything for Captain America 
even though the Captain America that, that Chris Evans played was basically the guy that I came up with, the one who stands for American ideals rather than, you know, World yes. War II, which was the, the, the previous version. But, you know, Jack Kirby and, and Joe Simon get the credit for that. Right. So if, if I took a character and made it, you know, somehow more accessible, right. there's nothing for that. But if, but if you created a character, then, then there, there is something for that. Um, and, you know, and, and screen credit, you know, I mean, the Disney, Disney has been, you know, they're a giant bureaucracy, so I can't say, oh yeah, everything's hunky dory all the time. Right. <laughs> but I mean, you know, Disney's been pretty straight up about it, whereas DC is is totally the opposite. I mean, DC, um, you know, I was I when Gotham came on TV and I saw that characters created by DC Comics, mm-hmm. like, well, sure, somebody came up with the whole Gotham PD concept back in the day. And I'm sure somebody, you know, yeah. all these things developed by people. But DC doesn't believe in people, you know, so. Um, it's, it's different. I mean, I, I, I will say that, that if Silver St. Cloud shows up in something, DC will send me some money too. But I mean, it's, it's, um, Marvel is much more, uh, forthcoming in that regard. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, that's part of the nice situation that I'm in now. And that all this stuff I did 45 years ago is, is, is getting me some income now, uh, <laughs> And I'm glad, you know. Yeah, that's actually quite fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. I've got to ask you, seeing, you know, when they announce a Shang-Chi movie, for example, are you ever tempted to go, you know, can Coyote be a movie or, or, you know, other materials that you've you've created in your own? Are you ever tempted to do something with that, to to look for, for movies or television licensing with that? Um, To some extent. I mean, I'm... Writers never retire. I mean, you don't get to be 65 and they hand you a gold watch and you go, okay, cool. Because <laughs> writing is just, you know, it's just something that you do. You can sit by yourself and you can do it. You don't have to, you know, have a lot of infrastructure involved. So um, I'm still, I'm still, you know, writing things, um, doing this, that, and the other stuff. But I'm not, like, fully engaged in having a career at this mm. point. Mm-hmm. So, um, th- you know, there's there's a couple guys in L.A. who have come and said, what do you got? You know, you got anything that we can make a movie out of? And I'm, you know, and I'm talking to them about stuff. But it, um, I did not, you know, go out and, and start pitching things. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't go looking. They came to you. No. When I, when Nightman was a TV show, mm-hmm. um, I was, you know, I was writing for the TV show, which is another thing that I did. Um, and. Because I, I still didn't never lived in Los Angeles, but I would go down to Los Angeles like once a month. Um, and while I was down there, I would run around and I went to all the studios pitching stuff. Um, I, I sold two different concepts, both of which never actually made it to screen. So I tell people that makes me a real Hollywood writer because I, <laughs> because I never really got all the way to the end of the process. Um, so there was a time when I was, yeah, when I was running around pitching things, but uh, I still don't live in Los Angeles and I'm not, you know, driving down there once a month in order to, to take a shot at that. So, mm-hmm. 
Well, it, uh, it, oh, gosh, I, I actually had a thought about that and I think that I missed, it. I think you mentioned in one of your, uh, uh, articles about, um, your return to comics, maybe back in the mid eighties. One of the things that you said were that you missed actually having readers for your work. You were getting mm. paid by video game companies at that point to develop stuff, but a lot of it never reached fruition. Right. Um, so I would think that, you know, I've, I've read other articles and interviews with uh, particularly comic book writers who the, the immediacy of having an audience and having a fast turnaround and having your stuff be read by thousands of people just months after you write it is um, a very unique situation to be in in many ways. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with all of that. I mean, if you wrote a book, it would go on sale three months later. Mm -hmm. And so there was a three-month lag between what you wrote and the feedback. And you would have written three more issues of that thing by that time. But um, you and, and in those days, it was all letters sent in envelopes with stamps, right? I mean, right. that kind of thing. But, I mean, you would get those. And... Again, you only know what you know, and, and I walked into a situation where, you know, every Marvel comic sold uh, about three quarters of a million copies, and if it went down to three hundred and fifty thousand, it got canceled. Right. Right. So I mean, it was a it was a mass market. It was readily available on first on newsstands, and then later in comic shops and so forth. Um, when I read that, you know, the current Batman is selling like 3,200 copies or something, it's like, <laughs> that's, you know, I'm like, well, you know, first of all, as a comic book fan, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of sad to hear that, but I do understand that everybody's watching the movies now and they're no longer interested in the printed material and, and then anywhere, I mean, not even beginning to be the same numbers as, as it used to be. So I, you know, I just walked in and, and got into a mass market situation, and that's um, everything you said is true. I mean, you get you get a lot of feedback. You know that you're entertaining, you know, a lot of people, um, and you know all that's the feedback, particularly. You know, you, you got a lot of it because there were so many people who who were reading your stuff. Um, I read all the letters when they came in, you know, and and. Um, uh, it was it was very useful to you know to to see what people thought because again I would we started this with me going yeah I kind of know what people want right. you know well okay but I can be full of crap too so it's like well <laughs> do they actually do they actually want this or you know or what you know so I I, uh, I have two spinoff questions for that one which is going to be ridiculously picayune and the other one will probably be ridiculously sweeping and vague. But um, you mentioned on your website that uh, you wrote all of the letters and the responses for the letters page for Captain America. I think it was 148 because yeah. they had lost the letters. Um, yeah. I had the chance to, thank God, actually go and dig up that letters page. And I was, I was curious, knowing that you were the person who wrote them all. Uh, I guess my first question, because I noticed that you had one from, say, Milford, Connecticut, were all the addresses places where you had lived? Do you remember offhand, or did you just sort of make them up out of uh, pull them out of a hat? I think, you know, I think, I mean, I don't 
really, you know, remember in detail. Mm -hmm. And I did live in Milford, yeah. But um, um, I, I, I remember there were other times when we'd be there wouldn't be enough letters about a book or something, and it would be it would fall to me as the low editorial guy to write a letter and, and mm -hmm. fill out this letters page. I think what I used to do was I would look through ran, you know, I'd, I'd open up a random back issue and I'd find some street address like, you know, mm -hmm. 19, 1947 Schuster street. So then I, I, when I'd make up a letter, I'd put it at like 1949 Schuster street because theoretically, <laughs> you know, there would be something like that. Right. Yeah. Because uh, I don't know, because it would have been in Pittsburgh and I don't know what, what's in Pittsburgh, but I knew this was in Pittsburgh because the guy had written the letter. Um, so, um, that, that's, you know, that's all, lived, that was what I was I've, curious about. So, yeah, I've lived a number of places, but I don't think I filled that Captain America's column with all the places that I lived, but I wasn't I, sure because there was also, uh, Indianapolis, which I think, well, I lived about. there. Yeah. It's yeah. My own and, so there were four letters and I was very excited about the idea of like the secret code. Uh, and then, and then the equally ridiculous but more sweeping question is: um, for someone who uh, developed a style that, like you said, was stuff that you liked as a reader and very much grew out of that Marvel continuity in the sense of it proceeding yep. forward, um, do you think that there is an expiration date on that you mentioned at one point the sort of the unique experience of uh having people complain about having to pick up other comic books because you'd written a crossover and realizing that it was no longer a marketplace where people were spending 15 to 25 cents on a book but but also yeah. additionally um you know when if somebody like I think you also mentioned in in sort of talking about Avengers Celestial Quest, the idea that at a certain point you had always been very good at being able to keep the continuity of everything straight or do the research. And at a certain point, it just got too unwieldy. And I think in the interview you said, well, it's kind of the editor's job by that point. That's what the editor told me. Yeah, right. Tom, uh, Tom because it had been it had been the writer's job. Well, I mean, again, I, when I got there. We were we were ten years into the Marvel age, and so you know I, I never thought of it otherwise. That the fact that the Thor that I was writing in the Avengers was the Thor was mm -hmm. you know that's Thor, same guy. Um, I'm not a big fan of retconning stuff. Well, maybe I might I might settle for retconning, but I mean rebooting stuff, starting yeah. over again, starting over again, starting over again. Um, but I, you know, and I, so I really liked the continuity. It made the people real for me that they, you know, that they had, you know, they had actually been there and done that and you could look it up. And so that was something that, in fact, you know, affected their character and, and all that. Um, do you, do you so think that ever to... runs out though? Like after, after the oh, character's yeah. been there for 30 or 40 years, there's that thing of they either mutate into something that they that doesn't resemble the original concept as some people argue or the flip side everything becomes you know it's sort of an entropic heat death and nothing sort of means anything you know yes no i yes i'm i'm down with all of that um i you know in the 90s 
when I was doing Nightman and Strangers in Malibu, that's when people started complaining about having to buy other issues. Uh, mm-hmm. And I had never, I had not encountered that before. Mm-hmm. But, and it, you know, it, it probably took me a while to kind of wrap my brain around it. But at that point, you know, it's like, yeah, okay, now we're talking, if you were still writing for Marvel, you were talking 30 years mm-hmm. since uh, things got started. Right. And I understand, you know, I mean, every there's an old saying, every comic is somebody's first comic, you know. But I mean, right. people who were just getting into comics in the 90s can't really be expected to know what happened in 1963, you know. Mm-hmm. And and you can reference it, but, it, but you know, that's like, that's a long time ago in, in those things. So I understood that, after, you know, the, the stuff that I liked about the continuity did have a shelf life, would run out. And, and apparently had run out at that point. Um, but I, you know, that was something that I personally really liked was the, was the continuity. But yeah, when I came back in the two thousands to do celestial quest, um, the first thing I did actually was a Hellcat mini with Norm Brayfogle. Right. Uh, and you know, I, I brought Hellcat into the Avengers. I'd brought Patsy Walker into, into the beast. I mean, mm-hmm. had a history with her. And so they said, we want you to write this Hellcat thing. And since you were here last, she married the son of Satan and committed suicide. <laughs> oh, well, I said, I said well, you know, I, I, I'm sorry, but I didn't, I don't know about that stuff. And that's when they said, it's no longer the writer's responsibility to know. It's the editor's responsibility to know. Right. So, um, again, that was, that was a change that was, you know, but. Again, that's like moving the you know to a different ballpark. You're like, okay, well then, tell right. me what I need to know, and I'll you know, and I'll go with it. Do you think that there's sort of a like anything over? Because for myself, I sometimes wonder if you know DC made it. I don't know, you know, thirty or forty years in, into their universe, so to speak, and then Marvel sort of comes along, and then. 30 or 40 years in, it sort of seems like people like you who believe in a sense of progress and moving things forward start really banging their heads against um, the, the limitations of editorial and, and the limitations of continuity. Um, do you think if, if the American comics industry was healthier that we, you know, that it would just be a matter of a new comic book universe sprouting up every thirty years, or or even new titles and new characters popping up in a universe every thirty years or so, um, rather than just a, an an IP maintenance organization um, after after a half century or so. That's well said, well put. Um... Yeah, I mean, if, if, if you posit that the, the comic books are an ongoing, viable, mass market phenomenon, then yeah, I think I think it's quite possible. I mean, that's what that's what the Malibu Ultraverse was. And that same summer, mm-hmm. Dark Horse launched a universe, and I think there was even a third one. I don't remember. But, uh, you know, there was a, definitely a feeling in a, in, a, in a lot of people that, yeah, it's the mid '90s. It's time for you know for some new approaches to this stuff. Right. And um, you know, I mean, Steve Gerber and I, uh, you know, were part of the Malibu thing, and and we compared it to to like the lobster in the pot 
story. I mean, it's like <laughs> once upon a time we had complete creative freedom and then gradually we kind of like lost it. Mm. And now here it was again, you know, Malibu gave us complete creative freedom to do what we wanted to do. Um, so it was fun in that regard. And it was fun coming up with a, with a universe right from scratch and all of that. But unfortunately, Marvel was in the process of going bankrupt and, and they took the entire industry down with them. And yeah, Malibu, Malibu had more money than most because they had been the publishers for image uh, mm-hmm. before they became their own, you know, before they started their own universe. I mean, basically they were publishers of image until image decided to go be their own publisher. And then Malibu said, Oh, well let's, let's create a universe of our own. Right. Uh, so Malibu was like the last company to hit bottom, but eventually they did, they ran out of money and then, and then Marvel bought them and all those characters went in the drawer and have never been seen since. So, right now uh, I know that um, people tend to insist that, that that has nothing to do with the idea that they would have to pay uh, you creators um, royalties if they brought those characters back. But have you ever heard any other explanation as to why they all still, you know, are, are rotting in a drawer somewhere? Yeah. The alternate explanation, which I don't believe, I, I do believe it's because of the royalty situation, Mm -hmm. but what they say is, Oh, there was something in the original contract between Marvel and Malibu that precludes it. But nobody will ever say what that something was mm-hmm. or, you know, how that would work or whatever. Um, I, you know, I am totally convinced that um, when we were putting together the Malibu deal, we said, you know, all of us creators, we said, we want to own the characters. And Malibu said, no, we have to own the characters, but we'll make you profit participants. Right. So that any time the characters get used, you get some income. Mm -hmm. And that's where that deal, you know, that's how the deal went down. So, you know, if if Marvel published Nightman, they would have to pay me some money. Mm -hmm. Um, And my argument, you know, when this was coming up was, well, you know, by the time, you know, there's a couple people who get paid in that regard, the original artists and stuff too. But I'm, So it's like 90% of something is better than 100% of nothing is, is my sure. argument. Right. But the, but the converse argument which has been made is that as soon as somebody got a percentage of the, of the money for writing Nightman, the people writing the X-Men would show up at the door and go, we want the same deal. Mm. And so, you know, I can I, – if that rings true to me. That they that they don't they don't want to open up that um, that situation. They don't want the X Men people coming around and saying, "Well, he got it, so why can't I have it?" Um, but in the mean, and 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 I will say also, I mean, just to fill in your thing, um, in two thousand one, Tom Brevoort came to me at San Diego and said, "We're going to bring the Malibu characters into the Marvel universe." wants you to write a book which has like the major Malibu characters, not just your own, but the others and, and and do a book. Um, and I, you know, I plotted the whole thing out and, and, and I plotted the first issue. I plotted the first 12 issues, blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden, Nope, we're not doing that. And I think that's when somebody looked at the contract for the first time and said, Hmm. Um, and since then, since that time, two different times, people, 
in the editorial end of Marvel have come to me and said, I really think, you know, those characters should come back. I'm going to see what I can do about making that happen. And the last one to do that, this is a true story. This was in like 2005. I mean, somewhere in in that time frame. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was an assistant editor at Marvel who said he was going to do that. And he called me up two weeks later and he said, they told me that it was worth my job to pursue this. Wow. Wow. Um, so there's a, there is a definite desire not to publish those guys at Marvel. And yeah. I think it's because of the royalties. But the official explanation is there's something in the contract that makes it a problem. I don't know why something in a contract would make people threaten assistant editors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> true. That's some contract. That's a hell yeah. of a clause. Um, yeah. But it's too bad. I mean, you know, there were that. You know, there is nobody like Nightman, for example. There is, you know, there's a number of Malibu characters which are pretty cool, and have no, you know, counterpart elsewhere in the comic book world. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you know, I mean, they made a TV series out of it. For God's sake, yeah. yeah. No, there was no, there, there were no Marvel comics about Nightman coming out to bolster it. You know, I mean, it's just like. There's there there's something that's you know going on behind the scenes certainly. Yeah, yeah. That sort of touches on something that I was curious about, which is, could you see yourself working for Marvel again on on a Malibu property or on something else, or or DC or or do you think that you're done with like those companies and honestly with 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 mainstream comics at this point? Um. Well, I wouldn't work for DC. That's that would be a whole. That's a whole long story. But um, I am done with DC. Um, Marvel, I could certainly. I mean, I could see that sort of thing happening. Um, but you know, I would. I would say to them, I want complete creative freedom. I want to do. You know, the way the way that the stuff worked the first time was that I got the have no limits on me. And so that's what I would want to do. And I don't think that would, you know, I don't think they would agree to that these days. Right. Uh, it's all, it's much more bureaucratic and corporate and, and, and frankly, editors have become kind of, uh, full of themselves, uh, since now they're the repository of all knowledge and so forth. So, and I don't, I'm, I, that sounds snarkier than I mean it to sound, but I mean, uh, I think, the way I would want to do it is not the way that they would want me to do it. But, you know, I mean, if somebody like Malibu or somebody, you know, somebody came along and said, you know, you can do a book the way you want to do it. then and I, you know, like I said, I haven't, I haven't given up writing, but I, but neither do I foresee anybody doing that, you know? Yeah. It's a, it, it's interesting because certainly after the, um, you know, significantly huge success of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you definitely see uh, a, a lot of um, venture capitalist money uh, descending into comic books. You know, like there's the stories that I'm sure that you've heard where people, you know, quickly throw together a comic book, you know, and push it out onto the market and then you know, as essentially a, a, a four color pitch for, mm-hmm. you know, a movie deal that they might get, or you see situations where massive amounts of money are spent. Um, uh, you know, how, what was it, Graham? How much money did someone spend on, on Atlas comics? 
Oh, oh yeah. God, it was it was the billions, wasn't it? Yeah. It was right. seven billion or something insane like that. It is insane because... They publish nothing. <laughs> exactly. They pu- well, they publish 50 characters, about 49 of whom are nothing. There's probably one or two... There's probably one or two in there that are, you know, that, that you could do something with. But uh, by and large, those characters made no impact at all back in the day. And... and uh, um, but it's somebody, yeah, it's somebody going, exactly. yeah, I can get all these characters and I'll have all this property and I can do this stuff. But, you know, and I mean, every once in a while, I mean, it's it's not uncommon anymore to, to like, go to a movie that you, you know, that you just go to the movie and then it says based on a Dark Horse comic that did that. And it's like, oh, OK, well, uh, you know, it's it's. Um, there, it, it is cheap way of, of, of storyboarding a story and, and, and showing people yeah. what's going on. But, but um, you know, as, as DC has discovered, there are a lot of people out there who can make movies who have no feel for comics at all, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, and, you know, I mean, it, it's, again, it's somewhat amazing that Marvel got this to work you know i mean if 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 they hadn't gotten robert downey jr for iron man number one that movie might have crashed and burned and that would have been the end of the whole thing right there you know but i mean things have broken right right for marvel um and they do they know what they're doing they they understand you know we we're talking about how i had a feeling for what comic book people what comic book readers want to see. Mm-hmm. Kevin Feige has that same feeling, right? You know, he understands what people want to see and he knows how to get it done. Right. Um, and so there they are, you know, and DC doesn't understand what people want and they don't know how to get it done. And so their movies are no good. Right. You know, with the Wonder Woman exception or, you know, whatever. But, um, I mean, they're going to, they're going to reinvent Batman again, from what I understand. And it's like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, Batman is the, I mean, uh, he's such an, an anomaly. You mentioned him as, you know, y- your favorite character. I think he's, um, you know, in a way, almost everyone's favorite character. He can mm-hmm. sort of, it doesn't necessarily matter what era you try to bring Batman in or back. He seems to be sort of malleable in a way. That, um, you know, he seems, it looks, I mean, maybe at some point they will screw it up, but it certainly seems like they've managed to, will continue to reinvent him endlessly. And for everyone, people will be like, oh yeah, Batman's still great in a, in a way that people can be a little more suspicious about, you know, Green Lantern or uh, the Flash. Or Superman. Or Superman. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so. Mm -hmm. Those things, those things can definitely change, uh, or some of them can change. But you know, some characters really do manage to sort of transcend um, their origins, so to speak. And I, I think that, I think that Batman has a very good chance at being that character who, sort of like Sherlock Holmes, you know, except the way things are set up, he'll probably never enter the public domain, but he will always be in the pop culture in some weird um weird way you know he's sort of the chicken bone that's going to catch in the throat of pop culture you know so um i wanted to ask you uh steve you 
you one of the things that struck me and and actually i i don't know maybe this is too long a question but i i was i was really always impressed at how generous you were in your interviews talking about uh comics as a as sort of a collaborative um force and everyone sort of having to be responsible for their own ends but also having a lot of um trust and appreciation for what everyone else brought to it uh, mm-hmm. I wanted to ask sort of, uh, you mentioned Dick Sprang, who, who sort of, um, are your favorite comic book artists, maybe ones that you haven't worked with? Um, well, I would say pretty much, I mean, people ask me who's my favorite character right? and I, and I, my honest answer is they all are right. <clears throat> you know, I mean, and, and to elaborate on that real briefly, I mean, Anytime I sat down to write a character, I tried to make it the most interesting character that I could conceive of, mm-hmm. and then he was then interesting to me, you know. So I mean, um, I can't I can't say oh this character is more important than that character or whatever. Um, and I would say pretty much the same with artists. I mean, uh, I've worked with a lot of artists. It is a collaborative medium, right? Um, and you know, like George Tuska was not super fun to work with but uh i still you know i still liked his artwork um uh and and yeah i actually i mean it's like i can't i can't just say oh i mean you know i love neil adams i love right you know i mean but like i like them all well i was curious because one of the things that i thought was uh for example you were pretty candid about the fact that that simonson's first issues on Batman didn't quite work out for you. And you, you know, one of the things that you had said, uh, you know, Marshall Rogers and Terry Austin, you sort of talked about the, basically they bought, brought enough black to it. It sounds sounds to me like you're a big fan of a good inky black line. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I, when I took over Batman, I went back, I, I had things that I wanted to do, give him a give him a sex life, give him a girlfriend, you know, get to know Bruce Wayne, the guy who was inside the mask, mm-hmm. as well as the guy who wore the mask. But the other thing that I did was I, I had seen various reprints, you know, over the years and the early Batman stuff, partially because, you know, um, most of the people who were doing it hadn't, you know, they weren't. How shall I say this? Bob Kane, for example, was not a great artist, right? Right. Uh, so um, Jerry Robinson was, but I mean, yeah. um, there was a lot of black in those days. I mean, that first year, the first year of Batman, it was a pulp book. I mean, it was like very dark, and and the villains were vampires and monsters and and all this kind of stuff, and the Joker, of course, you know. Um, and I really wanted to get that back again. I wanted to get that pulp darkness. Um, Danny O'Neill and Neil Adams had started doing, you know, more. Uh, they'd made, for example, the Joker like less of a clown and, and more of a villain. But it still wasn't. And, you know, and Neil did a lot of shadows and stuff. But it still was kind of like a clean darkness, mm-hmm. I guess. And And I wanted that pulp, you know, I wanted it really dark. So I, you know, I did. I, I said to the letterer, "Please make the panel borders double thick, just so there'll be more black on the page." And I said to the artist, "You know, put as much black as you can into this stuff. We want, you know, we really want it to be um, as dark 
as makes sense. Um, and, you know, I mean, Simonson and Milgram, both great guys. And, and, and I, when I got the Batman assignment, Walt got the Batman assignment and we spent a long time talking about it and he was very into it, but all he could do, all he had time to do was layouts. Mm -hmm. And then, and then Milgram, who is also a great guy and all that, but his stuff, his inking, his art in general is, is loose. And so taking layouts and doing loose inks over them, you didn't get a lot of darkness. You didn't get a lot of, um, atmosphere. Uh, so I was, I was, um, it was not what I was looking for, but at the same time, wasn't my call. I mean, in those days, you didn't go to the editor and say, fire these guys and get somebody else. <laughs> you know, right. I mean, you yeah. didn't come in with your buddy and say, he and I are going to do a mini series together. And you know that it was entirely Julius Schwartz's um, um, call. Right. And, and I guess Julie wasn't happy with it either because I, you know, I was as surprised as anybody when I saw, Terry and Marshall's Marshall and Terry's artwork. Right. You know, well, you also mentioned, which I thought was such a really astute observation about how much, uh, Al Milgram's work is, um, sort of, uh, almost abstracted, uh, kind of cartoonier. And you had mm -hmm. said that you weren't, you didn't necessarily think that Joe Sinnott was the best choice as inker on West coast Avengers for right. Milgram, which, um, I thought seemed like a, you know, unsurprisingly, since you've got your, uh, you know, your artist background, that you seemed very uh, attuned to the idea of art and style uh, in that sense. Did you ever find that there were artists that you loved as a reader and then found it frustrating to to work with them, or the flip side, somebody whose work didn't necessarily speak to you as a fan. And then when you were working with them, you were like, Oh, thank God. Um, and if that's too gossipy, we can totally skip it over. I just, no, I no, but I mean, curious. um, I mean, I, I've mentioned Tuska a couple times tonight. Right. Uh, cause I can, cause he's dead. I mean, you know, I liked Tuska's art, but I, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, a real pleasure to work with him. Mm -hmm. Um, going the other way, I think, you know, if it was an artist that I had seen in comics, I think I had a pretty good idea of, you know, what it was that he did. So I, um, the only thing that would be a mystery to me was what was it like working with him? But I, but there was, I don't think I ever, you know, worked with somebody where I said, Oh, now I have a whole different idea of what it is that he does. Mm -hmm. Um, I just had to learn how he did it. Um, and in most cases that was, you know, that was a good thing, you know, um, um, I was always yeah. impressed at, at what a good match you and Sal Basima were on, on those yeah. Marvel books in the seventies. And it's interesting because hearing some of your descriptions and in interviews about some of the art that you liked, I was very curious if there was in a way that dissonance because his stuff is very sort of clean and representational. And I don't necessarily think of it as having a lot of, um, I don't know, you know, sort of weighted line work in a way that might really excite you, but it sounds like you were really a great team together. Well, yeah, we were. And, and the reason was he was a, he was a fabulous comic book storyteller. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to tell stories and 
I've, I've, I've said this any time the subject has come up. I mean, part of the reason that I had the career that I had is because I started out working with Sal um, on Captain America and then the Defenders right at the beginning because um, I had complete creative freedom, but that's that's doesn't matter if you say, you know, draw me this thing, and the guy goes, well, you know, I, can't, I don't really know how to draw that thing. Right. You know, um, but Sal could draw anything. I could just, you know, I could come up with any idea, and I could hand it off to Sal, and I would know that it would be there. Um, it was clean and clear, and again, I just said, Neil Adams, you know, I love all that rendering and all the all the correct physical anatomy and and all that good stuff um but when i was first you know when neil started doing his stuff i said this is the epitome of comics there's nobody there's no place to go from here and the next guy actually who was a big star was mike plug who did mm-hmm. you know the, the more uh, cartoony kind of stuff yeah and that yeah. was cool too and and so anything that that makes for a good comic is okay by me. Um, uh, and Sal, he was just such a pleasure to work with. Um, you know, his brother was more famous and all that, but I, you know, I, I, I worked with both of them, mostly with Sal, but I worked with John a bunch and, and I liked Sal better personally, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's no, there's no arguing artistic quality maybe, but I mean, Sal just, how shall I say it? I mean, it's like um, John Buscema had a really distinctive style when he came into Marvel, and they gradually, you know, ground that out of him. They wanted him to look more like Kirby, right? Um, and and I think after a while, he got kind of bored. Um, one of my one of my little touchstones. There's an Avengers cover uh, from the Roy era, Avengers eighty, you know, seventy. I don't know, somewhere in there. Um, where Quicksilver is running away from the Avengers. And it's sort of shot at an angle. He's coming out at you as an angle, and the whole thing is tilted a little bit, and there's a lot of extreme perspective and all that. My first Fantastic Four cover was done by John Buscema, who did that other cover, Mm -hmm. and it's Quicksilver running away from the Fantastic Four. But in this case, he's running straight at you, and there's, you know, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of the... The cool, the cool stuff that could have been that was there in the first version of that concept wasn't there in the second concept. I think John got bored right. after yeah. a while. He much preferred to do Conan and and stuff that was not superheroes. Um, whereas Sal always loved superheroes, and 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 I love superheroes. So you know, it was, it was fun working. So that's great to hear. You guys were a great team. I, I'm I'm curious, and I, I'm also like aware of the time and, and and looking towards closing this. But you know, do you still love superheroes? Do you still read comics? Is this still something that's still part of your? You talked about you know being very plugged into pop culture. It, are comics still part of that pop culture diet? No, um, because modern comics have changed so much that again, I you know I know what I want to see in comics and I don't see it. So. Um, um, I won't mention any names here, but but people about six months, nine months ago were saying, have you read this particular series? Because it's really well written now. And I'm like, okay, well, let's go check that out. And I read it, and I, you know, and I said to myself, the thing that's missing in modern comics is fun. Mm. You know, 
these these books were really well written, but they were bleak and they were, you know, they were, you know, and, and you know, the world has changed and, and, and all that good stuff. But they're just, you know, I, I was I'm would be looking for more uh, just pleasure, <laughs> you know, visceral pleasure in doing stuff. So the and, and again, I know that they're all, you know, heavily micromanaged and all that. Um, so. Uh, you know, if well, I, I just, I don't find that I get my comic book fix out of the movies like everybody else sure. now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think you'd mentioned at some point that, uh, you know, you got, would be mentioned in the same breath as Steve Gerber a lot. And Gerber was a lot more inherently bleak and you felt that mm-hmm. you were a little more of a, upbeat person, I guess. Yep. Yep. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that that's, it's super important in a way. I feel like it's arguably more important than ever. It's funny looking at some of the stuff where, um, you know, your very first issue of justice league and which I found out later was the, um, before the green lantern story that you wrote later, starts off with, um, you know, the ice caps in Antarctica melting. Um, and this is, of course, back in the 70s. And, of course, you know, Secret Empire, you have basically have, a, a, you know, the Secret Empire and a corrupt president who, you know... Uh, right. It's a very... Considering uh, we woke up this morning and got to see, you know, stories about Jeffrey Epstein... Uh, you know, uh, killing himself supposedly in his cell. Supposedly, yeah. Yeah, it's it's. It, I, are you still a relatively upbeat person in your own life? Because it's in some cases it seems like an even bleaker world than the cautionary tales that you were telling in a very upbeat way back in the seventies. Yeah, I think that again is a good question. I think. Um, yeah, I'm an upbeat person. Um, I mean, that's, that comes from being 17 years old. Um, <laughs> uh, but, um, yeah, I mean, we're living, we're definitely living in bleaker times now. Um, and, and, you know, I don't, it, it, you know, I would say, well, a bleak comic book story, maybe that's exactly the, on the pulse of the America, except for the fact that they don't sell any of them. So it's like, right. you know, I don't, I don't know what would intrigue people necessarily, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, we're going through tough times right now, but I, you know, it's my, and I'm perfectly aware that it could all turn out badly. You know, it, it, could, it could go bad, but I sort of think that it won't. Um, uh, but it's, but that's my attitude, I guess, you know, um, I don't know. Did that answer your question? Oh, very much so for me. Um, I, Graham, I think you should, um, make sure to either ask questions or, or wrap things up. I apologize if I totally monopolize everybody's <laughs> time with that, with, with those series of questions, but thank you. Thank you so much. Sure. No, I, I I am also very aware of the time we've taken. We've taken up a couple of hours, and and we we only agreed to take one. So I, I'm feeling very grateful for the time that you spent with us. Well, you know, it's it's fine. It's all right. <laughs>
Jeff, is there anything else you want to ask before we, we depart? Oh, I mean, this is the sad part is I, I think probably another six hours of, of questions, but, but I, I am more than, I'm more than satiated from everything. Again, Steve, just really wanted to thank you so much. Um, you know, if you find yourself with hundreds of hours to kill, uh, <laughs> you could listen to Graham and I babble pretty much three times a month for the last 10 years. And like I said, you've definitely been a cornerstone in the way that we understand and appreciate comics and relate to comics in, in, in a funny and probably also sad way relate to each other. And uh, just wanted to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. It, it really was uh, it means it's been a, thrill. a tremendous amount to us. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you. I'm glad we were able to put it together. We had to dance around for a while to find the time to do it. But uh, yeah, you know, it, it was fun. It's cool. Yeah, it came, it came it came together sooner than Scorpio Rose issue three. So I think that that's, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Thank you again, and um, uh, we'll let you know when we when we post the episode. It should be in the next day or two. I'll send you a link if you if you want to listen to it or pass it around to your friends. Um, okay. You know, but but thank you again. We're, we we really hope that you'll be game to talk to us for our twentieth anniversary. Yeah, I'm up for it. We'll schedule it now. Terrific. Pencil you in. Uh, thank you very much. It's been genuinely great. You're welcome. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you.